HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Once again, you've tuned into the Heritage Radio Network and you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today, once again, we are on the line with Janice Ray, author of The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food. And that quote I read was from Wendell Berry, his manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. And uh, Janice, you opened your book with that quote, and and I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you felt that was the most appropriate way to uh, introduce, introduce your work. I think it says it all, in a way. Um, I, you know, when, when we boil down what's happening with our food supply and agriculture, it really is that the industrialization of ag changed everything. It changed the, entire, the face of, of, of food, of eating in this country. And, and so I think we have to sort of poke some fingers in the big bellies of corporations um, just, you know, just to see what happens. <laughs> I like that. Every day, do something that won't compute. Well, I wanted to open up the show today by giving you a chance to do a, a little reading from your book because I wanted uh, my listeners to be able to hear um, from you uh, a little bit about what they can expect uh, should they pick up the seed underground, which they definitely should do. So would you mind sharing a, a short piece with us? If you haven't heard what's happening with seeds, let me tell you, they're disappearing about like everything else. You know the story already. You know it better than I do, the forests and the songbirds, the Appalachian Mountains, the fish in the ocean. But I'm not going to talk about anything 
that will make us feel hopeless or despairing because there's no despair in a seed. There's only life waiting for the right conditions, sun and water, warmth and soil, to be set free. Every day, millions upon millions of seeds lift their two green wings. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Erin. That's just a little paragraph from the introduction. And um, maybe we could return for a minute, every, every day do something that won't compute. You know, in a way, we've become, so many of us now live in urban areas, 80% of us. And, and to think about writing a book about seeds and the planting of open-pollinated seeds, it's a, a bit of a crazy idea with, with us you know, no longer even in the industrial age, but more in the technological age. And but I have this, I just have this, um, oh, I just have this feeling that we're really moving into a different age, which uh, Thomas Berry calls the ecozoic. And and I think it will require of us that every day we do things, and increasingly more and more of us, and doing more and more things that just don't compute. Not to just go back to that quote, but it, it occurred to me that I hadn't explained that well enough. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's something that I'll be chewing on for a while. Um, and one of the things that you talk about in your book that that I would love to explore a little bit more today is, you know, in general in this country, I think we're pretty familiar with the movement uh, of people um, over the course of the last hundred years from a predominantly rural society to a predominantly urban or suburban society. And along with this kind of shift in in where we live and, and kind of how we live, there there's also kind of this corollary, corollary shift in... Um, who's been responsible for our, our food supply. And, you know, it used to be something that was very intimate with regards to uh, people primarily producing food for themselves um, or for a community uh, that was very close to them physically. And, and it seems like there's been this uh, shift away from that. And I'm wondering if you can maybe reflect a little bit on on that shift and, and the role uh, that seeds have played and, and how they've been impacted by this transition. Mm-hmm. Great question, Erin. I, I, I may have said, said this to you before, but I sometimes I look at my, my family as the sort of the poster child of American ag. My grandfather farmed a small diversified farm in southern Georgia. And indeed, he was responsible, or he and his family were responsible for feeding themselves and their neighbors, you know, with the sharing of some foodstuffs. Um, We watched with the advent of the Green Revolution, a sea change in American ag, uh, we headed toward commercialization of food, which required shipping long distances and also required standardization, so more and more farmers planting to fewer and fewer varieties and, in this case, larger and larger acreages. So um, we did see a change, as you said, in, in who's responsible for our food supply, and we've uh, pretty much, we've almost wholesale now turned over the responsibility to to industry to corporations and i think the the role that the seed plays is to bring us back to the place 
where we take more responsibility. We we don't exactly trust what uh, corporations, multinationals, industry might be doing to us. We have an inkling that they're not acting in our best interest. We see rises in many, many diseases tied to nutrition and diet. And um, also, I think the further we get into a virtual uh, age and, and less realness, the more we all hunger to have direct engagement with the land, with landscapes, with the world. Um, I think that's enough said about that, except I will add that, you know, seeds were a victim in industrialization of ag. Farmers abandoned these old place-adapted vintage heirloom seeds. They had been growing, oftentimes family heirlooms, and you know, um, for... For, the, for hybrid seeds that had higher yields and now since the mid-90s for genetically modified seeds, which also promise all kinds of, of, wonderful, um, of wonderful things. So, yeah, that, there you have it in a nutshell. Well, how would you respond to, and I, and I, you, I feel like we hear this um, kind of claim a lot in the political arena that, you know, corporations are, are people, uh, they they're composed of people. The decisions made by them are made by people. The the benefits or the uh, losses are are felt by people. And you know, I think it's easy often to just point to corporations or multinationals and say like they're the bad guys. And I want to not not that I would necessarily disagree with that, but I just want to pull back a little bit and and talk something about this this this. Uh, phrase that you brought up in the last show, the monoculture of the mind. And when I pick apart a little bit, you know, what is the mindset that uh, allows for those decisions? I mean, if corporations are comprised of people, uh, you know, where are, where are we, where are we going wrong there? And and how can we kind of unpack some of that? So, I don't think that corporations are people. I think corporations are piles of money that people um, that that basically own people's actions. Um, so it's a very different. You know what I'm talking about here is a very different outlook on what corporations are, which makes it possible for corporations not to be held responsible in many many cases for or negative effects of their actions. Um, Monocultures of the mind is a phrase that came from Vandana Shiva. Vandana is a great seed activist and author and seed banker from India. Um, She's talking here about uh, about this, the man that if, if a corporation is to succeed in... In doing what it does best, which is follow this model of progress, the uphill line, producing more and more profits for its shareholders, then it necessarily must enforce monocultures of the mind, meaning it has to, through whatever means possible, uh, figure out how to make most people think alike. Advertising is the main way this is done, but there are other ways, too, you know. 
it, it would be to a farmer putting the word out wholesale that your old, you know, your Keener corn or your branch corn or your Stanley corn or whatever your family's been growing for generations is is not the right corn to be growing, that everybody's growing this new, uh, you know, GM variety. In fact, 88% of the corn in this country grown is GM corn. So that's what monocultures of the mind means. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in a woman, a scientist named Virginia Nazaria at the University of Georgia, and she wrote a book uh, about... It's a, she's a cultural anthropologist looking at seed saving, and she uses the term the uh, marginalities of the mine. So in contrast to the, mo- the monocultures uh, of thought, we, you have these people, these gardeners that I call quiet revolutionaries who are keeping alive these heirloom, you know, traditional varieties of seeds, keeping alive genetic resources, curating all these amazing endangered tastes, and they do so at the margins of society, at the margins of what is accepted as, as the major trends in agriculture. So that's really what, you've nailed it. This is really what happened to, to heirloom seeds, is just changing landscapes in economics, in society, in agriculture. And it, a movement toward more. Let me ha- let me see how I would say this. More. Um, the word is not ubiquitous. Just more blanket thinking. Well, sameness is kind of what comes to mind uh, to me for some reason. Uh, this weird, and I think it's a very strangely. It seems like a very un-American thing. This uh, this kind of broad base push towards eating the same things and, and and pursuing the same things. And I think historically in our country, that's never really been the case where, I mean, I think it's always been a place to come to kind of pursue your individuality, to to exercise, you know, freedoms uh, uh, of choice. And I think it's so strange to me the um, quick drive towards, you know, being like, everyone else or each place you go looking like the place you just came from i mean something i'm often struck with when uh, i travel through the country is oftentimes it feels like i could essentially be anywhere in the country because unless i'm in a more uh kind of dense urban environment or a more extremely rural environment it seems like these things in between um just don't have any distinguishing features, and and that's re- deeply troubling uh, and and confusing to me because I just I don't understand uh, w- you know where that's coming from. And I wanted to talk about in your book you you know you're very careful with uh, uh, deconstructing some of the language that is commonly used to talk about agriculture or to talk about food or to talk about seeds and. You talk about um, this use of the term conventional. Um, I think often in farming conversations, we talk about organic agriculture versus conventional agriculture. And, and you kind of put forth a different definition of conventional. You, you hold conventional up against chemical agriculture. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that distinction. 
And I get this, Aaron, from my husband, who's probably who's the real farmer around here. And we we go to we've been to many many conferences on organic agriculture and so forth. And and he'll often hear speakers talking, and they and they do say it's organic versus conventional. And you know, it's it, it, we we have to realize the power of of rhetoric. Um, George Lakoff wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant, which is, is if you tell people, you know, don't think of an elephant, don't think of an elephant, that's the one thing that you're going to think of. And so it, it makes some of the verbiage that we use, especially in government, you know, No Child Left Behind and, and Clean Skies Initiative, which really <laughs> worsened air pollution. So... I, I too, I, was, I gave it some thought after he pointed that out to me, and I realized it's exactly right. There's nothing conventional about chemical agriculture. It's only been around. It's less than 100 years. You know, my grandfather, when my grandfather began to farm, he was farming the truly conventional system, which is the traditional system, a closed-loop system that, that uses animals on the farm for manures that, plants rye and, and other cover crops for green manures that remineralizes the soil if possible, you know, that rotates crops, that plants a diversity of crops so that you're less beset by with insects and disease. So, yes, it's just naming what is instead of letting other people control the language. Thank you. We are going to take a short break and then come back for more Seed Talk, so stay tuned. You're listening to Devil's Trail by Brothers. grass-fed beef pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef free-range, sustainably produced humane Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef the authentic flavor of the American West All right. 
We are back. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Janice Ray, author of The Seed Underground, and we are talking about seeds as they relate to pretty much everything, I think. Um, so, Janice, one of the t- other topics you talk about in the book a lot is um, climate, 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 and a microclimate, um, and you know, climate change is obviously something that is uh, in the forefront of people's minds. I think in particular, uh, this this past year, having been such a weird weather summer across most of the U.S. And, and certain regions of the U.S. definitely feeling the impacts of reduced waterfall. Um, I know in the, just this past Sunday in the Times, they're talking about a, a pear growing region in Southern California and and kind of plans to divert uh, water sources to because so many areas of that region are, are really under under stress for their water system. And I think seeds have historically played a really critical role in being adaptive to particular climates. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about kind of the risks that we we're facing due to kind of our lack of protecting of, of seed varieties um, in particular kind of talking a little bit about exactly what is a microclimate and how seeds um, change over time to adapt. It's like oh eight questions there. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Pick one. <laughs> oh no, no. What a wonderful question. And I'm, I'm just going to jump in. It's all, it, it really is. You've, it's all about genetic resources. And DNA is so tricky because it's invisible, it's everywhere, it's, it's hardly quantifiable, you know, kind of like love, you know, everywhere, invisible. And, and we don't want to lose any of it. And, and you've, this is the reason why. A seed is, is more or less a natural memory stick. In it, 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 col- it collects and stores climate data for, uh, for generations, for the next generation of itself. Um, you know, it, millions of years of DNA material is stored in a seed. We, a hundred million years ago, flowering plants appeared on Earth. Um, a couple hundred million years ago, humans. So you see... We, we come late to, to this biome, and we come with this with a long history of evolution of, of flowers evolving, pollinators evolving to, to pollinate those flowers, and then producing fruits and seeds that we came to use. Now, all this material, all this DNA, the genetic material, is still at our disposal, and we have no idea now in the, in the early stages of climate change, seeing already seeing huge climate variability. We don't know what genes we may need for our crops to adapt to these changing, rapidly changing conditions. More drought in the southeast, in the southwest, you know, more fires coming through, more rainfall, large rain events. Uh, Four inches dropped in one in one hour at our farm last week. So, um, it, it, I think what you and I talked about the lumper potato and what happened with the potato famine. That so many of the Irish families in the 1840s were growing lumper, 
and when late light hit it, um, it, it caused a, a, a wholesale famine. So that's that's what that's what the scientist in us is looking at, and, and, and not just the scientist, but the naturalist and and the person who's concerned, the futurist, um, the eater in all of us looks at those diverse tastes and thinks, oh, gosh, I want to have four kinds of kale growing in the garden and all of them taste different, differently. And, I, and me be able to make different foods, different traditional, you know, there are beans traditionally used for baked beans, cranberry beans, for example. It, it's really, you're right, it's beyond taste, it's beyond the beauty of the farm stand and the beauty of our table. It really is about preparing the human species for the catastrophes that we've created that lie ahead of us. So what would that, I mean, what would that, how does that work in practice? So, you know, if we're looking at, uh, you know, the state of Nebraska and the corn production there and holding that out as this, you know, large-scale chemically-based agriculture, experiencing drought. I mean, do they turn around in their next planting and look towards uh, a different old variety, or they, are they driven to look towards a uh, technological solution? Or how, how do we respond? You know, obviously it's challenging to respond within one growing season, so my sense would be that when you look to replant, you would make different seed choices as you try to anticipate the, the climate direction for that season. Um, or, you know, that, so that, that being kind of like one example, or on a, a smaller scale, if you're planting in your back garden, is it, is it more kind of a natural thing that occurs? Like as you plant or save seeds year after year, that things just kind of naturally adapt to what's happening around you. I mean, where is the intention and how does that look different when you're talking about those two, you know, opposite ends of the scale? It's so great to talk to you. Brilliant questions. Um, my mind is, is roaming around a lot here with, with different ways that I can jump in. Let, here, let me, let me do this. Um, we didn't get to this point in, uh, in an instant, and we won't get out of the troubles that we're in uh, with our food system instantly. It's going to take time, so I'm not advocating that we uh, drop all GM seeds from the market or all hybrid seeds from the market. I think that the change that I'm advocating, I know, is already happening, Aaron. We're in, we're in the, I won't say the middle of it, but we're in the, we're cresting. And the change is happening among young people deciding to be, that farming is a noble profession and deciding to become farmers and really just wanting to, wanting a life that's authentic, that makes sense, that's real, not virtual, that puts them in daily contact with the natural processes of the earth. And, and th- that means deciding that they're going to grow organically or, or however, grow small, grow diversified, um, uh, grow, cult- you know, grow the culture, grow community as they grow food. Um, 
the, the, the ability to, of a plant to respond can't, it, it, it can't happen completely in one generation. It's, it has to happen over time, and you're exactly right. Uh, through something called selection pressure, which is if we planted 100 of uh, um, Jimmy Nardello bell pepper, then, and we, ha- we were beset by a, a, an enormous drought, there will be a few of the peppers that do better than others, and so those would be seeds that we'd select for the next generation. Then we would plant those, and, and that's the way we have to do this. Um, unfortunately, there are no quick answers, and there's, it's, it's just never going to be 2 plus 2 uh, right now. It's always going to be, well, Paul Gruco, a wonderful Midwestern writer, he talks about the model of history, of how, we, how humans move through life. And he talks about the uphill line of progress, which is the, the, the one most corporations would, would embrace. He also talks about the, the, the more traditional one, which is a cycle. It's a circle. So we've got an uphill line. We've got a circle, which is you know, returning back again and again to where you were, the cycles of seasons. But probably the more apt model for human progress is a meandering line. Go in one direction and then you correct. Something corrects you, and you go in another direction. Now, sadly, climate change may correct us very quickly, but I think that's, that's our model, a meandering line. That sounds true to my personal life experience. Um, uh, well, we are almost out of time. I wanted to touch on the, the doomsday vault um, in, in Norway, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, that uh, particular operation with regards to seed saving. The, the Svalbard Vault, Global Seed Vault, was finished in 2008. It's about 700 miles south of the North Pole in, within the country of Norway. It's uh, lined with a... So it's, it's a tunnel blasted into a mountain that's lined with a meter's width of concrete. Countries from all over the world have been placing seed varieties there. We have. The Seed Savers Exchange has sent hundreds of varieties, as have our seed banks. Um, Inside the vault, the temperature is naturally about 23 degrees Fahrenheit, but refrigeration units bring it farther down to minus 4 degrees. Seeds stored there in airtight, watertight packages are, uh, are, are hoped to be safe from whatever the future brings. Genetic engineering gone wild, uh, a comet hitting the earth, the worst-case scenarios of climate change, seas rising, and so forth. The seeds in it, uh, even though a seed has a lifespan that's fairly short in your or my you know, back room, or in, even in our refrigerator, the seeds there are, will, are hoped to live anywhere from 50 to 2,000 years. Um, my only concern about the Svalbard vault is that it's, it's not a foolproof thing in that a seed does have longevity. I think the, the more perfect way to save seeds would be out in the world adapting to the changes, intermingling, getting to know other 
you know, other squash better. It, it's it's the the highly militaristic locks on the door a style of food security as opposed to the, you know, let's intermingle style of food security. Gardens are living gene banks. There's also something that we can all participate in in a way that um, the vault is, is not. Well, Janice, thank you so much for joining us once again. Um, her book, The Seed Underground, A Growing Revolution to Save Food, is available wherever books are sold. The publisher is Chelsea Green Publishing. They are awesome. Check them out at www.chelseagreen.com. Stay tuned. After the Farm Report, we will have a green market update, but that is it for today. You can... Um, Tune into the show through uh, iTunes. Everything is available as a free download. HeritageRadioNetwork.org has over 25 live weekly shows. We have also recently partnered with Stitcher Radio, a wonderful um, app that you can download on your iPhones or your Android or your uh, iPad, any of the i stuff. It's compatible with, so check it out. And tune in next Thursday at 1 o'clock for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right, you heard it here. You are on, we are on the line with Liz Carollo of New York City's Green Market, and we are about to tuck into the market update. Liz, what is going on? at the market. Hey, Erin. Um, the market, it's full-on summer at its peak right now. The tomatoes coming in, we have over 200 varieties of tomatoes in the green market system. Um, so they're in abundance right now, and because there's so many flooding the market, it's they're really affordable. So now's the time to stock up on tomatoes and do some canning so you have them to enjoy all winter long. Um, everything's on that two to three week earlier schedule this year. So this week we've seen pears, apples, and even grapes showing up at the market. And now's the time to get the blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, melons before they're gone for the season because fall is going to be here before you know it. Um, I also want to encourage people to maybe check out some of the specialty Mexican varietals that we have. I got to the market this morning, and down the block you could smell the papalo, um, the papiche, epizote. We have some really great varieties of herbs that um, maybe people aren't familiar with, but you can always ask the market manager and or the farmer to um, kind of explain what their flavor is and how to cook with them. Um, but one product I really wanted to spotlight today was is grapes. So this week, Concords and Green Seedless came in um, from Locust Grove Orchards. One of our beloved farmers, Buzzard Crest Vineyards, will be coming back in in a couple of weeks. They have an amazing variety of grapes and um, kind of to die for juice, and they only show up at the market for three weeks to a month, depending on how long the grapes last for. Um, so it's one of those things where you kind of have to get them while they're here. 
And uh, so you'll see grapes at the market for the next month, month and a half. Um, and I want to encourage people to, you know, not just snack on grapes, even though they are amazingly delicious and like nothing you'd find outside of the market, um, but also to maybe, you know, turn them into jam and test them out in a savory dish because they add that perfect amount of sweetness to a lot of um, meat dishes that you're cooking. Um, Let's see what else is happening. We have some kind of general market happenings. We started a bring your own bag campaign. We're trying to explain to um, green market customers how to, you know, the detrimental effects of plastic and to bring their own bag to the market. We're partnering with Green YC, which is the outreach and education arm of the Mayor's Plan YC initiative. So we're just um, trying to spread the word and encourage people to bring their own bags and not take plastic while they're at the market. Um, we have our sandwich smackdown coming up, so we're doing that through our youth education program. Uh, we have we're going to have teams, 15 teams of youth with a couple of chaperones making sandwiches inspired by market ingredients at Union Square um, in the Park House on September 8th, Saturday. So we're still looking for teams to compete, and um, the event is free for event goers. So we just have need to register, and all that info is on our website and. Um, also, we're partnering with Our Goods. So, Our Goods is an organization that helps people um, kind of connect so to provide barter opportunities for one another. And they're going to do a thing called the Unsold Supper. It's the second year. Um, it's September 15th, at, again, in the Union Square Park House. And it starts at 6. And it's a really great event. It's free, it's open to anyone. Um, you can just come and eat with farmers and other people in the community, and we're going to encourage people to figure out what they can barter with farms. So say they want to teach English or um, provide graphic design opportunities or help farmers build a website, and in return the, bar the farmers will provide something um, to the person that's helping them. So that's a, um, that's a really great event, and also the event um, information is on our website. Awesome. That sounds great. So many yeah. things happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, we have this weekend, we have two canning classes, so they're free workshops. One's at the 82nd Street Green Market, and one's at the Columbia University Green Market. So 82nd Street on Saturday, Columbia on Sunday. Our resident canner, Robin Fuscus, will be out there um, answering all the questions about pH and um, any other canning questions people have. Awesome. Wow. Great. <laughs> yeah, Liz. we're busy, and we're just going to get busier going into fall. Um, the August is actually the slow month. <laughs> well, I can't wait to uh, hear the update in the weeks to come. Um, yeah. If you out there listening want more info on the farmers, the market, or want to hear about some great volunteer opportunities, check out the website, www.grownyc.org. And you can follow uh, the Grow NYC crew on Twitter. They have a bunch of different handles, a couple that we'll share with you today at GAP Green Market, Frets for the Grand Army Plaza Market here in Brooklyn, and at UNSQ Green Market for the Union Square Green Market. So tune in next week for the latest and greatest from the market update. Liz, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 